All right, 1 Corinthians 1.18 to 2.5. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that it is written, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, thanks so much for this morning, for this church building that we can come and worship together in. God, I want to pray for Tommy this morning as he comes forward to preach from this passage. Uh, God, speak through Tommy to remind us that when we boast, we should boast in you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, Mercy House. It's nice to have you guys with us. I'm Pastor Tommy. I want to welcome you this morning. If this is your first time here, I'm really glad that you're joining us here at Mercy House for worship. Uh, this spring, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, but before we do that, we're going to dismiss the children, and they're going to go out the back. I'm sorry. I always forget. They're going to uh, head out the back and go right across the street, or... Awesome. All right. So this spring, uh, we're going to be going through the book of 1 Corinthians together, which is a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And last week, we did a lot of setup. So if you missed it, here's kind of the gist. Corinth is this wild little city that resembles kind of like a Las Vegas and Wall Street brought into one place. 
Uh, they're geographically located in, in this four-way bottleneck in southern Greece. And this location drives a ton of tourism uh, and a ton of money into the city. And their nickname as a city was Wealthy Corinth, which honestly sounds a little bit lame. I think to contextualize that a little bit, we'd call it like Cash City or Bling Palace. Like this place was loaded. They, there was tons of revenue that was being generated there. The, the Corinth was really the epitome of this work-hard, play-hard lifestyle. And the city attracted a lot of ambitious, entrepreneurial people. That was kind of the spirit of the city. And it created a culture that was highly competitive. It was really success-oriented. And with all of that success, people uh, lived it up. They lived it up real hard. To be a Corinthian meant to live a, a licentious life of just complete debauchery and excess. That's what it meant to be a Corinthian. Corinth was a city all about money about fame, about power, about sex. Maybe that would have been a better sermon title, a little more provocative. The title of our sermon series is Fractured Church, because that's what Corinth was. And what we'll see over the next couple of months reading through this letter from Paul to the church is that there are many areas of messiness and of brokenness in the Corinthian church. And I think one of the first questions for us is, well, what does that have to do with us? <laughs> Like where, how do we fit into this? Are, are we a fractured church like Corinth? And the answer is yes, we are. Uh, but that's not why we're going through this letter. We, we didn't choose 1 Corinthians uh, as, a, as a leadership team because we're like, man, Mercy House is so broken. We got to come in like real heavy. Let's go through 1 Corinthians. This isn't some sort of like subliminal messaging or, or passive aggressiveness. This is not like if Caitlin, my wife, were to give me a book called like How to Chew Quietly with Your Mouth Closed. And I'd be like, hmm, what are you, like, what are you trying to say, babe? You know? All churches are fractured. All churches are messy. Usually in different ways. But 1 Corinthians in this series would be valuable for any church that's listening in. And so that being said, there are specific ways which Mercy House is fractured and messy in this current moment, which for sure is going to be brought up as we go through this sermon series. But, but hear me now, not each fracture that we experience here as a church is like a universal fracture for the entire church. So for example, let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. In case you didn't know, our pastor and his wife uh, transitioned out of our church last August. And for some of us in this room, others of us who were listening online or on our podcast, like that departure was really painful. It, it was a really hard time. It, it revealed for some people, like, man, my relationship with Robert Amell is pretty fractured. Last fall, people in our church experienced hurt. Others grieved and, and were really sad. A lot of people were feeling all of these emotions at once, and some of us are continuing to process that fracturing now. But some people are listening right now, and they didn't have that experience. Like some of you shook their hands, you gave them a hug, and you said goodbye, and you moved on with your lives, and here you are now. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Even more, I think some of you might be like, who's Robert? <laughs> and why do you keep talking about him in these sermons? Not all fractures and points of correction are going to be deeply personal for you as we go over them in this sermon series. And yet, we do get deeply personal and specific corrections as we read 1 Corinthians. Like, Paul names names. He calls out things that are happening in the church with extreme specificity. And so why would Paul go into detail on these very specific corrections if they're not relevant to everybody in the room? 
Well, because fractures within a community, a church community, are relevant to every person in that community. And Paul is writing specific details about specific people to be read in the context of everybody being gathered together. And the reason why he's doing this is it's in order to build a sense of collective ownership over these fractures and to grow the community and mature the community. The reason is because as Christians, like, we bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. We aid in the healing of our brothers and sisters. We support with accountability our brothers and sisters. So even when we don't struggle or wrestle with the same exact hurts or, or the same exact fractures, we listen, we learn, we pray, and we engage with other members in our church family who might be hurting. And that's what I hope that we're challenged with, Mercy House. Not just to stop in on a Sunday morning and then just to skirt out quick without engaging with any of the members here at church. And Paul preached this way, and we want to approach it this way because church is a family. And Sunday is, is a family meal that we all share together. It's not just like a vending machine you stop by, you put in your dollar, you get your Coke, and then you go. This is a meal for a family that we share together. So here's my exhortation to you, Mercy House. If you ever hear a point of correction that may not apply specifically to you, I think this is how you respond. First, you'd be thankful that God has spared you from experiencing that fracture, but then you take some time and you grieve with your brothers and sisters who are in it. You continue being sensitive to that, and then you offer loving support for them as they process through it. And that's what Paul is hoping for as he publicly rebukes as he corrects fractures within the church, and that's what I hope our church is able to do moving forward. All right, so main point from last week is that all churches are messy and fractured. And one of the common fractures we see in the early church, and even here in 2022, is that divisions sprout up. And what happens is we, we will focus on people or programs or preferences so much that we lose sight and lose focus of Christ. And it's not just having a preference for one school of thought, but when we get into murky waters, it, it, it becomes a preference that, that birds frustration and creates animosity toward other ways of doing things and toward the people who represent them. And when we fail to give these frustrations to God, and we just kind of unload them amongst ourselves, and we start naturally gravitating toward those who have similar frustrations over certain fractures within the church, that's when divisions are born within the church. These could be based on theological differences. They can be programmatic preferences. It could be, man, I think the church should be run this way. And this isn't an evil or bad thought, but when it inhibits your ability to love others within the church, to build up the body, and to work harmoniously alongside one another, it doesn't ma matter how pure your conviction is, you're creating division. And so this is the church that Paul is writing a letter to, one whose fellowship is fractured. And what we need to remember is that fracture doesn't mean paralyzed. Paul resets the fracture. He calls Corinth to keep their focus on Christ as, as they heal that fracture together and to embrace their diversity as a church, but to live in harmony with one another, in agreement with, with one mind, the mind of Christ, and with one focus to be disciples and to make disciples. So keep all this in mind as we jump into this morning's passage, starting in verse 18. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God stronger than men. Paul begins this section by making a a declaration about the gospel. He's saying there in verse 18 that the word of the cross, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who who bore our sin and shame on the cross so that we could have right relationship with God, uh, that's folly, that's foolishness to those who are perishing or dying. But for those who are being saved, who are being brought to life, that's actually the power of God. So in other words, those who are unsaved, those who are not experiencing God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus, the gospel is foolishness. It's a ridiculous story about God becoming a man and dying for humanity. But for those who believe, who hear this and then believe in this truth, place their trust and their faith in the word of the cross, it is the power of God. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable. It is the incredible story of God's redemption of his people. And it is, a, it is powerful in bringing people who are perishing back to life. So if you've ever had the experience of sharing the gospel with someone, I think you know this dynamic. I know some of us in this room can share the gospel with zero shame and full confidence. But I think for the majority of us, we struggle with it. When we're presented with an opportunity to share the gospel, the word of the cross, it's awkward. We can be a little bit shy. We can kind of skirt around it a little bit, maybe beat around the bush and procrastinate. And we do this because we know that the gospel is a little weird to those who don't believe in it. It's a strange message. It's not culturally normal in most parts of the world. Sharing the gospel, especially in our context here in New England, can literally lead people to thinking that you are simple. Like you are unintelligent, that, that you're a little foolish for buying into what Karl Marx would call the, the opium of the people. And this is what Paul is acknowledging. The gospel message is not received favorably by the culture of the world, but nevertheless, the gospel message in reality is the supernatural power of God. For it holds the power to forgive sin, to make people holy, and to literally bring the dead back to life for eternity. Now, why does Paul start going down this road as we're reading through this letter? And the reason is because he's he's trying to help Corinth understand what led them down the road of being divided, why they were fighting over their preferences and allegiances for for different church leaders uh, to begin with. And sure, he's exhorting them toward healthy unity, as we saw last week, but he's also shepherding them through this root cause of all their fracturing. So what was the root cause? What led them to their disunity and their quarreling over leadership? Maybe it was bad leadership. Was it bad leadership? I mean, after all, as we're reading in James back in January, there's greater scrutiny those in leadership, right? 
I'm going to venture out and say that the root cause for the fracture in their fellowship was not because of poor leadership. Listen, their, their leadership team in Corinth consisted of Peter, the rock, who Jesus said he was going to build the church on. It, it, it included Paul of Tarsus, the father of what we know today as church planting, who wrote nearly half of the New Testament as we have it. And then you have Apollos, the Alexandrite, who, who was the most gifted and effective preacher, one of the most, that, that the world has ever seen. Like, if this was our elder board today, we'd feel like we're in pretty good hands as a church. But nevertheless, even with tremendous, godly, faithful leadership, the church is still horribly fractured, which I think is a sobering reminder for us today that the best leaders in all the world cannot prevent messiness in church. But a fractureless church having a tidy, unmessy church is not the goal of church. It's not my goal as your pastor. To be broken and to be messy is to be the church. And so what led the Corinthian church to a place of great division and fracturing within their fellowship wasn't poor leadership. It was because they had bought into the cultural narrative of Corinth. So remember, Corinth was highly competitive, incredibly ambitious. The culture valued professional and personal competency. Like if you were put together and you were composed, then you'd be taken seriously. If you could speak well, if you could hold your own in debates, if you could string together some words of eloquent wisdom, then the people would be dazzled. <laughs> they, they would go, ooh, and say, ah, because that's what it meant to be wise during that time. And so being enculturated with these values, it bled into their experience in church. That competitive nature that valued wisdom and competency was what created those divisions within the church. But look what Paul says in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul takes the cultural narrative that worldly wisdom and, and competency are ultimate, and he flips that on its head. Paul's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14 here, where you have these prophets who were considered really wise, and they had predicted that Jerusalem would be attacked, but that they wouldn't actually come into any harm. But what we read there is that their hearts are so far from God. And so God frustrates their perceived wisdom. In short, they were wrong. Even as the people praised them in all of their prophetic wisdom as being prophets. And Paul's making the point that wisdom that we perceive and value culturally, that's held in high esteem with, with such respect, is not actually as valuable as it appears. And Paul it goes on in verse 20 by calling out the people who would have been held in high intellectual and professional esteem during that time. And so if you, if you look at it in verse 20, the wise there, it's going to blanket all people who would have been respected. The scribes there would have connected teachers of the law or government officials. And then the debaters who would have been the philosophers, and they would have been the ones on the town common displaying their wisdom, their eloquence, they would have done it openly as they debated people as they were walking by. And today, I think it would be a little bit different. No offense to our resident philosophers. I know we have a handful. 
But what Paul is saying is bring me the smartest, the wisest, the most respected and revered people in our culture today. Like, where are they? I want to see them. Where, where are these brain surgeons? Where are these partners of law firms? Where are the people who are the top theoretical physicists and the aerospace engineers? Where are the mathematicians, the therapists? It actually gets quite aggressive. It's an aggressive invitation by Paul because he's about to make a very spicy claim in the second half of verse 20. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Translation, hasn't God shown us that what we understand as a worldly uh, level of wisdom that we hold in high regard up here, and God has shown us that it's actually like way down, way down here? Like, hasn't he done that? Verse 21, for since the wisdom for, I'm sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul, that was the period on the sentence by God. Paul is saying that for all the praise and all the prestige and honor and respect that we give our doctors and lawyers and our engineers, the, the amount of esteem we might dole out as a culture to people who have PhDs and Nobel Prizes and all their knowledge and all their insight and all their studying and all their research and all their personal wisdom, like, were they able to discover the gospel? Were they able to know God through all of that work? Were they able to discern their own sinfulness? Were they able to find God in a little microscope or experience salvation by just having like an amazing courtroom argument? The answer is no. It says it right here. In God's wisdom, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly that is the gospel what, what our culture cringes at, what we're sometimes embarrassed to communicate, the opposite of what our culture holds us as high and, and highly esteemed and highly respected and highly valued. That's where true wisdom is, where the wisdom of God is. See, Paul is taking their cultural narrative, their value system, and he's flipping it on its head. He's making the case in this whole section that our secular worldview, our cultural mindset that we've been born into, that we live and breathe, that we participate in, can often be really deceiving. And, and it can be profoundly negative and have a negative impact on our spiritual lives and even our church. And this is something that we need to be conscious of, Mercy House. A huge part of what it means for all of us as a church to grow and mature in our walk with God includes, as Bible scholar Bill Pryor says, an unlearning of the wisdom of the world as much as an absorbing the wisdom of God. So an unlearning of the wisdom of the world and an absorbing of the wisdom of God. And Paul expands on this concept by getting really specific. The church at this point was mostly made up of Jewish Christians and Greek or, or Gentile Christians, those who weren't Jewish. And look at what he says about their respective cultural narratives. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Paul points out that what people in Corinth would have... Would have, would have valued spiritually in the church based on who they were. So those who came from Jewish backgrounds, who were born into the Jewish cultural framework, would have highly valued miraculous signs and supernatural displays of God's power. 
And this isn't outlandish. It actually makes a lot of sense. This is a huge part of how God historically interacts with his people. Even Jesus' ministry was full of miraculous healings and demonstrations of his deity. But miracles in the New Testament exist to verify and affirm the gospel message which Jesus preached. And so signs and miracles were not the content of the message. Jesus' ministry was full of people who wanted to see a magic show without realizing that Jesus himself, through his life, through his death and his resurrection, was the main miraculous act. Here in Corinth, there were those who demanded miraculous expressions of God's power and gave ultimate praise to those who would be able to bring that about. Greeks or, or Gentiles, on the other hand, valued wisdom in the church. And we already talked about this, but their cultural framework valued eloquent speech and dazzling displays of human intelligence and competency. They wanted to be emotionally moved by the words of men. But Paul says this in, in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So at the heart of the gospel message is the, is the reality that Christ was crucified. And in both cultural frameworks, this just didn't jive. For, for the Jews, the concept of a victorious Messiah king, powerful and capable with miraculous power, being tortured and murdered on a cross was absolutely scandalous. It, it was actually offensive. And for the Gentiles who praise competency and success, the narrative of a man willingly subject himself to the shame and the humiliation of the cross would have been uncomprehensibly foolish. The gospel narrative flips all other narratives on its head. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the world, the gospel message of a crucified king is not just awkward or silly. It's seen as weakness and foolishness. But for those who are called, there's that phrase again that we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 2. This is not those of us who are invited. This is saying those of us who have been called, who have been definitive, de definitively placed our faith in God. Those of us who are His, who are fully sanctified, who are fully redeemed, holy people of God. For us, the cross of Christ is the ultimate display of power and wisdom. It's what we hold in the highest esteem. We'll hear this, there's a song, it goes, the cross meant to kill is my victory. It flips it on its head. What the world thought was foolishness and weakness, God has declared it is actually wisdom and power. And so Paul shifts from talking about their cultural frameworks and their cultural worldviews that have shaped them, and he begins appealing to their own personal experiences with the gospel as further evidence that their value system and their cultural lens is really broken. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God showed what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is one of the first glimpses 
that we get into the composition of the church in Corinth. And Paul is painfully blunt here. He's essentially saying, I mean, look, guys, look at yourselves. Look around the room. None of you are rock stars. Not many of you are very successful. People don't really look up to you. None of you are even from families that are worth mentioning. By the world's standard, you, you guys are pretty much nobodies and nothings. Yikes, Paul, right? <laughs> Good talk. But to be fair, this was largely true. Now, apart from a handful of exceptions, the church at Corinth was void of society's elites. It wasn't a gathering of the most popular or the most powerful or the most prosperous. It was filled with those whom society would consider weak and foolish. <laughs> but as Paul says, this is very intentional. So look at verse 27. But God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The value system, the cultural framework, and not just in Corinth, but of the world that we live in, is based on personal achievement and our success. Uh, to be self-made and self-sufficient is something that's taught, something that's encouraged, and something that is praised. We as humans are taught that, that we have to create value for ourselves. And, and sure, this is done in different ways. You can do this by being smart. You can be athletic, or maybe you can do it by being wealthy, or you can be popular. Whatever vehicle it takes the form of, the driving force uh, of all of this is elevating the individual. It's all about me, 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 me. And God despises this. He despised it so much, specifically in Corinth, that he took what the culture and the world was saying was weak and foolish, and he used that to bring about his wisdom and his power. He chose what is most, the most unlikely of people, and he blessed them immeasurably. John Stock comments on this. He says, the riffraff were being converted, saved, changed. God picked out the scum of the earth and made them kings and priests in his kingdom. This was precisely what Jesus had himself indicated when announcing his own ministry. He had anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is the way of God, his wisdom, the power of the gospel. The narrative of the gospel flips the narrative of this world. We don't get salvation. We don't experience the power and the wisdom of God by working for it, by being smart enough or being talented enough. You can't buy it with all the money in the world. You can't be crowned with it by being the best athlete in the world in your sport. Verse, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who what? Anyone reading along? No, it's not on the screen. <laughs> those who believe. That's the word there. Those who believe. If this is true, then as Paul says, there's, a, there a, there's absolutely no grounds for boasting. There's no basis for ranking people within our church and holding some in higher prestige and esteem than others. There's no room to boast in someone else's gifts or competency, as if we're, we're kind of like pledging our allegiance to them, and that would somehow give us some like fan points or, or pride. Like no human being can boast in the presence of God because holiness and salvation are not things that are achieved. They're given as gifts. And if this is true, if we believe this, then there's no room for division 
and the church. And see, Corinth got a big piece of humble pie, as they say. They were told they were a group of nobodies. But then they were encouraged beyond belief because they realized that they didn't need to be somebody in order to know God and receive incredible blessings. So man, like, as we think about this, there are going to be times, if not right now, where we sit and we, we look around and we watch as the world just blows past us. And what I mean is we'll watch as people we know advance in their careers. They have beautiful children. They buy that huge house. They go on that awesome vacation. Like all you need is 10 minutes on Instagram to feel a little depressed about your own life. I'm serious. Like social media gives the highlights of everyone's life. And it's a lens that we can look through and see what our cultural narrative is. What, what we praise and value as success. And through that lens, what's valued is beauty, traveling, uh, having a successful business venture, defending dissertations, and, and like really good looking food, right? Like that's how we measure success in life. But be careful, Mercy House, be careful that you do not buy into our culture's narrative for what wisdom and power is. Be careful that you don't derive your value from how successful you are, how many likes you have, how many kids you have, or how many dollars you have. Be careful to not ascribe value and praise to other people who might have these things and say, wow, they are doing awesome in life right now. Be careful to not crush yourself when you don't measure up and do not boast in yourself when you do. The one thing we boast in is this, verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order to live as Christians in this world, we must take off our cultural lenses that we are born with, which our society and our culture constantly is trying to force us to look through. We need to renounce the wisdom of this world and we need to live looking through the lens of the gospel. The fact that we are in Christ and in whom we have righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Like these are treasures that are far more valuable than anything this world has to offer. So let's read these last five verses and we're going to finish for the day. In case you didn't know, chapter numbers and verses are added later on in Scripture in the 1500s. The purpose of that is really for convenience so we can reference parts of the Bible more easily. I do believe verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2 round out some of Paul's thoughts, which is why we're kind of dipping into the next chapter here. And so far Paul has talked about how the world evaluates wisdom and power how God has established wisdom and power and how that's contrary to how the world evaluates it and how God's establishment of wisdom and power is put on perfect display in the actual process of salvation and the message of the gospel. And here he wraps up his thoughts and Paul shares how it's impacted him personally. He shares a little bit of his testimony. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and a power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
And this is a truly beautiful moment as Paul gets really vulnerable with his church in Corinth. And Paul shares that, that when he came to Corinth, he didn't come proclaiming the gospel with lofty speech and wisdom. Again, the word wisdom there is in reference to the wisdom of the world, the, the wisdom that the culture in Corinth praised and valued, which means that he didn't try to go toe-to-toe with others who were masters at rhetoric or, or to try to put on a show to entertain his listeners. Like He didn't play the game of Corinth. He didn't buy into their cultural values. He didn't leverage the cultural framework as like a platform for the gospel. But instead, he decides to keep things painfully simple. He consciously decides, as we see in verse 2, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what this meant was that Paul, in his preaching, spoke about two things. Jesus Christ and Jesus' crucifixion. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't know anything else. It doesn't mean that there aren't other important things to talk about as you grow and mature as a believer. I mean, we're reading here 16 chapters of a letter that goes well beyond Christ and him crucified. But Paul was so aware of what he was going against in Corinth, that he was so conscious of the cultural framework and, and how twisted and distorted that was, that he wanted to make sure that the Corinthians got the pure gospel with no Pauline additives. And nothing uh, that would attract people to him as a person, nothing that would further sell or convince or persuade people to believe in Christ, nothing that would give glory to anything or anyone else other than Christ and him crucified. Why? Look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. At the end of the day, Paul wanted to be able to leave Corinth. He was a church planner. He, he wanted to be able to set the Corinthians up for spiritual success. He wanted the Corinthians to be able to have a firm foundation for their faith, one that, that was, wasn't rooted in his amazing pastoral uh, preaching ability, one that, as it is experienced in its simplistic reliance on God, would not be dissuaded away by debaters or other gifted speakers. He wanted them as a church and as individuals to have their faith rest on the immeasurably powerful power of God and absolutely nothing less. And so he confesses that he does this in a place of weakness with much fear and trembling. This verse is sometimes taken a little bit out of context. People will use it and say, see, even Paul is a little nervous and anxious about preaching the gospel. Or see, even Paul was nervous about how he would be received by people. And this is unlikely, uh, just based on what we know about Paul and his ability to preach the gospel. So Paul was like an incredibly prolific preacher. Like this wasn't his first rodeo. He had a knack for going into really, really tough places, uh, preaching the gospel and getting pelted with rocks and then like getting up the next day and going back in and like preaching the gospel more. So like Paul was not a guy who was afraid of man. He was so firmly rooted in the gospel that he wasn't insecure about how he would be received. Like he believed in the hope that he had in Christ, so much so that he wasn't even afraid of death. Like you see this in Philippians 1.21 where he's like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, whatever, bring it on. I'm going to preach the gospel. So Paul's fear and trembling was not before man, but actually before God. For him, the temptation uh, to rely on his own power and his own eloquence, his own ability to go toe-to-toe in these debates would have been strong it, it, because he, he was fully capable of doing this. The temptation to fight back and, and to play their game in Corinth would have been strong. Hence, 
this fear and this trembling. And Paul is sharing that he himself struggled with the same temptations to adopt the cultural worldview and to rely on self-confidence and his own ability instead of following the conviction and his responsibility to preach a gospel in a way that made nothing of himself and everything of God. I think this is specifically incredibly important for us preachers and teachers of the gospel. I know I'm convicted and challenged by this. There's a preacher, like, I want to do everything I can to point people to Jesus. I, I want to make sure every time I stand up here and use this little music stand here, uh, that I'm articulating the gospel, and that when I'm done, that the word of God is illuminated, and that you guys can see the cross just a little bit more clearly. Like, that's my hope. And look, I know myself. I know that I can string together a few words and pass as reasonably intelligent. I know that I can be persuasive. I know that I can hold attention. But golly, if, if I ever use these gifts to make much of myself as a man and detract from the glory of God, like God, help me. If you're a preacher or a teacher of God's word, this is the fear and trembling that we ought to experience as preachers of God's word. Not like, what will these people think of me? Or what if I burp while I'm talking and they think I'm an idiot? Or like, if people think I'm wise or, or I'm cool, like those aren't the, the, the anxieties and the fear and the trembling that we should have. Like the questions that ought to plague us as preachers and teachers and bring us to our knees in prayer and preparation is, did I do justice to the word of God? Did I talk enough about the beauty of the gospel? Did I make it explicitly clear that forgiveness and, and, and redemption and reconciliation are possible by grace through faith? Did I honor Christ? and him crucified with every single word that I uttered. Preachers and teachers of the gospel ought to wrestle in this way. Not be concerned about how smooth things went, or how many laughs they got, or how many people said amen. I need to hear this, Mercy House. But you need to also keep this in mind. There will come a time in this next year where we will begin the process of choosing a new lead pastor. I'm the interim guy. My job is to kind of stand in this gap to help lead our church into a place where we can make that type of decision prayerfully and with wisdom and with discernment. But remember this. As you consider the next pastor who fills this pulpit, what is the healthy heart of preaching and teaching? It's not eloquent words of worldly wisdom. It's not rhetorical ability or, or powers of persuasion. It is the acknowledgement, the belief, and the conviction that true wisdom and power are in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing less. Remember that. Lastly, Mercy House, let this encourage you as you go out into the world. Like, I may preach from this pulpit, but by God's grace, he's raising a community, an army of preachers who are about to go out into the world as we leave these doors. And so be encouraged. A part of God's word this morning is, is a humble reminder to those of us whom, whom God has gifted with the abilities to speak and communicate well, uh, to not rely on those gifts. But it's also an encouraging reminder to those of us who might not feel like we've been particularly gifted with the ability to speak well or to evangelize or to preach the gospel. The reality is that you don't need eloquence. You don't need to be persuasive or charming. The gospel doesn't need extra charisma. It doesn't need you to rehearse some apologetics. 
Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I want to challenge you this week to talk to somebody who doesn't know about Jesus, about Jesus. Wrestle with this passage and determine if you believe what Paul is preaching here. Do you believe that there is power the, the power of God in the simple message of the gospel? Do you believe that we don't need any other bells and whistles? Do we believe that it's okay to be weak, to be seen as a nobody, to stumble over your words, to even be seen as a fool? Paul was willing to do this as a preacher. The Corinthians were exhorted to remember this truth as they did church and we're a part of their communities, and we today have the opportunity to cast off the wisdom of the world and to rely on the wisdom of God. If you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here this morning. This is all we got. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he bore our sin and our shame on the cross, who died the death that we deserve, and he endured the punishment that we deserve, who rose again, defeating sin and death, and who extends by invitation to you the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with him. The evidence of God's power is seen in the salvation of his people as they respond to the simple gospel message. So if you are moved by this, if you are affected by this, if you want to respond to this, I invite you to come to the back as we do communion right after this, and to come talk with me. I would love to talk with you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Each week, we take communion, and communion is a reminder of the simple truth that it is all about Jesus. As we take communion together and acknowledge our collective need for Christ, our collective need for the cross, what have we individually to boast in? Nothing. We're all on the same page here. We're all together. But as we celebrate the death of Christ, which brings us life, we celebrate him. We boast in Christ, and then we respond in loud worship to the work of salvation that he's done in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, good God. You are a mighty king. You are victorious. There's no one like you. God, we confess that sometimes it is easy to buy into the narrative of the world around us, to get caught up in the rat race, and to let that dictate our thoughts, skew our emotions, even set the course of our lives and what we endeavor toward. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be freed from this cultural narrative. We thank you that you've given us the gospel. We thank you that you have made us who have come from nothing and have nothing to offer, that you have blessed us immeasurably with the gospel. God, thank you for the gospel message. Even though the world rejects it, thinks that it's foolish and stupid and silly, God, thank you that it truly is your wisdom and your power. 
God, help us to believe this. Help us to believe this in our own lives. Help us to believe this as we preach the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, God, that we would believe that there is actual power in just communicating the words of the gospel. And Lord, would you show off your power and allow people to respond to that gospel message in faith. God, only you can do this. We thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. I pray now that as we respond to you, Lord, that this worship would be pleasing to you, God. Lord, that as we sing, we would be boasting in you. We love you, God. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.